This is Circulating Ideas, episode number 225. I'm Steve Thomas, and my guest today is Addison Armstrong, author of the new book, The War Librarian. The Light of Luna Park, published in 2021, was her first novel. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Syndetics Unbound and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. And a special thanks to J.P. Putnam's sons at Penguin Random House for helping arrange this interview. This episode of the show is brought to you by Syndetics Unbound from ProQuest and Library Thing. Syndetics Unbound helps public and academic libraries enrich their catalogs and discovery systems with high-interest elements, including Reader's Advisory, cover images, summaries, author profiles, similar books, review, and much, much more. Synthetics Unbound encourages serendipitous discovery and higher collection usage, and was awarded Platinum Distinction in the Library Works 2021 Modern Library Awards. To learn more about Synthetics Unbound, visit Synthetics.com. While there, be sure to visit the Synthetics Unbound blog for news and analysis, including a breakdown of libraries' top titles and other stories of interest to the library community. Again, that's Synthetics.com to learn more about today's sponsor, Synthetics Unbound. Addison, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Your new book, The War Librarian, is about a librarian. What's been your personal experience with libraries? Ooh, I feel like I grew up in them. <laughs> we have a newspaper clipping at my parents' house in Florida, and it's a picture of my sister and me in footy pajamas at the library with our teddy bears tucked under our arms <laughs> at like a story time. And that's still up, you know, 20 years later. We were there all the time. I used to go, my grandparents lived in Baton Rouge, and that would be my main summer activity. You were allowed to get 12 books at a time. So I would go in, I would get 12 books. I was obsessed with like Nancy Drew, Joan Laurie Nixon. I was in mystery phase. Get 12 books, read them all in the next two days, go back, get 12 more. <laughs> on repeat for the two weeks we were there. The libraries were very much part of my formative years. <laughs> that's great. And the books that you've written, at least so far, have been historical fiction. When did that genre start really appealing to you? And what is the appeal of that genre to you? Probably around middle school. I remember I loved like Anne Rinaldi and all those like young adult historical fiction. I don't know what got me into it at the time. But I know now I love how something that's often very dry, you know, I'm a teacher, so I'm allowed to say that in class, social studies and history are often very boring can turn into these vivid stories that could be ours, right? You know, the clothes are different and the setting is different, but it could be us. And I can't remember who said it, but someone said that historical fiction is less a genre and more of a setting. So you can write any genre in historical fiction. You can write adventure, mystery, romance, any of those things. It's just in this historical setting. But I especially love dual timeline because I love seeing how one individual person's choices in what was probably not a great situation 100 years ago can echo throughout these generations. You might not even know that person existed or know what that person's life was or what those decisions were, but they're affecting you today. And then you have themes going between the two timelines in the book. And then the reader in modern day is like, oh, well, we're still dealing with this, that, or the other. So there's the third time. That's my very favorite things. It's hard sometimes to see what's wrong in our modern society because we're so used to it. It's just the way things are. But when we're able to look at this and think, wait a second, haven't changed as much as I thought they had or you know, this just looks different now. How long has history been an interest of yours? I don't remember it not being an interest, to be honest. So, <laughs> always. 
And how do you conduct your research? I guess when you were at Vanderbilt doing it, you maybe had access to a lot of resources there at the school. (laughs) That was very convenient. And now I've been in Manhattan for about a month and the library system is so vast that, you know, as long as I'm willing to travel an hour on the subway, I can get basically anything I need. I mean, a lot of it's online. I don't know what I would do without the internet. (laughs) My favorite is the old newspapers. You know, have like a subscription to a a website where I can look at those. That's my absolute favorite because you can see what the contemporary reporting was and it's not always what you'd expect. And it'll also give you little details that you would never get that aren't important enough to record (laughs) in historical narratives. So that's my favorite. But honestly, I do a lot of research on the front end to figure out what the plot's going to be, what makes sense. And then throughout the whole thing, I'll stop and research and go back and stop and research and go back. And I love researching. And I think I often use it as an excuse to like, not do the writing part. Like, oh my God, I know this. Make this second. I'm like four hours later. I'm like, well, that was too late to write. Oh, well. I've gotten lucky enough to do a couple of things in person. The second timeline, the War Librarian is at the Naval Academy at first co-ed class. And so while I was writing, I couldn't go because it was shut down to visitors due to COVID. But when I was done and I had like one last round of edits, my mom and I went to Annapolis and it was the summer. So I was off teaching and we were able to take a tour and that was just really incredible. I went through and tweaked a couple details. So that type of thing's really fun too. The same thing for the Light Luna Park. I went to Bellevue Hospital and Yeah, that's that's what's always hard writing in a time like COVID is that you really do need those details of actually being there and seeing, oh well, I see like the paints coming off of that or the way the doorknobs are, just right. whatever little details that you can't get. Exactly. And I'm spatially so bad that like I have no conception. I'm like, wait, you can't see Brooklyn from Bellevue? And my husband's like, no, we can't see Brooklyn from Bellevue. <laughs> so I need to be there to even get a sense of like, what is the space? <laughs> yeah, I always found when I was doing research, especially with newspapers, is that it was nice to like, not just to get the text of it, but to see the page itself, because then you can see the ads next to it and see what kinds of things. Yeah, that's so funny sometimes. Yeah, you and just get a sense of what people were talking about. Yeah. And did you read other things from the Times? Just reading The War Librarian, especially there's the difference in your writing, even in the time, like when you're the character from 1918, you're writing differently. Like she's speaking the way people in 1918 spoke. And how do you get the voice of a time like that? Definitely the newspapers, some, uh, because they're writing to the general public. So that helps a lot. Occasionally, I'll try to be ambitious and like watch something from the time, like a movie or something. But my attention span is so short that doesn't help <laughs> me. But there were other contemporary sources, like the American Library Association published bulletins and programs and meeting notes. And I could look at all of that. It was obviously a little bit more formal than someone would be speaking in like a day-to-day setting. But that sort of thing helped as well. There are albums with pictures of some of the camp libraries. You know, there are a lot of really incredible sources out there. Before we get into the book itself, was there anything interesting you learned in your research that you didn't get into the book that you were like, oh, I wish I could get this in? That's a good question. I think I tried to squeeze most of it in. There are probably a couple of awkward things where people are like, why Why is that in there? That's why. So can you tell the listeners what a war librarian is? This is not a concept that you made up. Yeah, and it's something I hadn't heard of. I stumbled across it. So the American Library Association and the War Department teamed up to form what they called the Library War Service during World War I. And their motto, their mission was a book for every soldier. So they raised something like $5 million, which was obviously an incredible amount of money at the time. And they distributed millions of books to soldiers both overseas and also in training camps in the United States. And they also furnished these libraries, especially at the camps in the U.S., with librarians, um, most of whom were men, actually. 
there was a rule at the beginning that camp librarians could be women, but hospital librarians could not. Maybe it was the other way around, but there was like a very specific, they didn't understand. If you look in the meeting notes, they're like, why are we allowed to be here? And then we can't walk to the other half of the camp and be over here. Eventually, they relaxed that rule and changed it. By 1919, the war was over, but there were still convalescents in France. A lot of soldiers who were not able to come back to the United States yet. And that's when they really started sending out um, a lot more librarians overseas, including a lot more women. I have Emily, the character in The War Librarian. She's invented, but she's sort of modeled after a Portland, Oregon librarian. I have her go a little bit earlier, just because there's no evidence that they did not. (laughs) And they did have YMCA and Red Cross volunteers working as librarians. So she kind of goes in that vein. And so she's there in 1918 during the thick of the action. But many of the librarians actually stayed for years there in these terrible conditions. So Emmeline is working in a base hospital. So they're, they're wounded soldiers coming in and it's World War One. You know, they're pretty gruesome wounds. And her job is to prescribe them books. And that's actually the language they used at the time was prescription. So there were lists that they would publish. They are going to want to read a Western if they have this kind of injury because they want to be distracted and they want to be reminded of adventure. Mm-hmm. They have this kind of injury. They're going to feel depressed and they're going to want to read something funny, but not something like a Western that'll show them what they can't do anymore. You know, so there were all these very specific suggestions, but then also always this clause. It was like, you're the expert, you know, the person you need to figure out what they need. So it wasn't just like she was sitting there behind a desk checking books out. She mm-hmm. was getting to know these men, knowing what books they needed. But then there was also this element of censorship where the War Department banned certain books from being distributed to soldiers. And I found that extremely fascinating. So I don't know what the real war librarians, how they responded to that, but I have Emmeline grappling with that. And there were librarians in the U.S. who refused to comply with similar rules. So there were places where librarians were told to get rid of all texts in the German language. And there were librarians who refused to take them off their shelves, things like that. Intellectual freedom, like you said, is something that we're still <laughs> grappling with today, unfortunately. And that's a concept that you do explore quite a bit. That's even the reason that her parents left Russia. They were exactly. intellectual freedom activists. Part of what gives her the courage to, oh, maybe I should do something about this because Yeah, she realizes that it's ironic. They're calling this a war to make the world safe for democracy. America's supposed to be protecting democracy and free speech, and they're limiting it. Yep. So uh, what was the germ of the story for this one, for for that timeline, at least? Like, where did you go? Oh, well, this will be an interesting thing to write a book about. What were you researching that tickled that fancy? When I found that the War Librarian existed, that was, oh, you know, maybe this would be interesting. We hear about nurses. We hear about women on the home front. We don't really hear about this. And obviously, I love books. I love libraries. It just seemed natural. But what really convinced this is what I had to write about was that censorship because it just seems so paradoxical. How is this massive public undertaking? Kids are going door to door asking for books. The whole country was in support of this program to send books to men. They thought it was so important. And then they were also banning them. And I thought it just doesn't make sense. And so I wanted to write about that because there was just that question at the core. So it's like, what if Emmeline is dealing with that same question? And I realized as I wrote that it wasn't as paradoxical as it seemed because both the conviction that the men needed books and also the act of banning them come from the same core belief, which is that books have power, right? That's why the men can benefit from them. But that's also why the government was afraid of them. So books have power. And that's something I really wanted to explore. 
well, this is a library podcast. So I've been focused on that one. But the other timeline, there's another timeline going on in the 70s. Do you write them separately or do you write them together? Or how do you do that? I, I do write them separately. The Light of Luna Park was my first published book. I wrote a manuscript prior to The Light of Luna Park that just wasn't getting any agents fighting. And some of the feedback I got was that the first timeline was beautiful. They loved it. The second timeline didn't feel like stakes were as high, et cetera, et cetera. And that one I'd written chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, you know, alternating. And so I realized that if I wanted to make sure each story could not stand alone, obviously, because there's a reason they're dual timeline, but that the characters could stand alone, that there was a full, complete arc, I realized I had to write them separately. So Light of Luna Park, I wrote Althea's story. When I was done, I wrote Stella's. The War Librarian, I wrote Emmeline's. And then I wrote Kathleen's. And that makes it sort of harder on the back end because you have to weave them together in a way that makes sense. Sometimes you're like, oh, they're not supposed to know this yet. It gets very messy. But I think for the sake of the whole story, it works better for me. I know lots of authors do it the other way. I wish I could write them alternating, but it doesn't work for me. Where did the 70s Naval Academy storyline come from for you? Just saw so many of the same issues. You know, Emily was a woman in a man's world, and that was not the primary issue she was facing in that first timeline, but it was there. And then here we are 60 years later, and Kathleen was part of the first co-ed class at the Naval Academy. And it, in a lot of ways, worse for her than it was for Emily. In 1976, my mom was a kid. My grandparents had kids. This was recent. My uncle said, oh, yeah, I remember when the first women went to the Naval Academy. I was like, oh, my gosh, what do you remember? It's like, I don't know. I just remember that it happened. <laughs> That's not helpful. I think I wanted to have sort of a more contemporary perspective to, like we said before, show things haven't necessarily changed as much as we thought. And that was just something that I didn't know a lot about. Even the people who lived through it, like my uncle, didn't really pay a lot of attention to it at the time unless they were moving in those military circles. But all of the service academies were forced by Congress to open up to women, and they had varying degrees of success and willingness to do that. So there was just so much to write about there with the woman in the man's world. And then there was also an element of you're in the military, you really are not given a lot of freedom of expression. So that's paralleled. And as you know, having read it, there are issues that come out of that. Yes, Yes. we don't want to give too much away. But yes, there are overlapping themes and everything that's together. Writing dual timelines, I imagine that has challenges and it has rewards. It doubles your protagonists, number one. So you have to have kind of two characters that you have to write, two stories. What are some of the things that make you want to keep doing that? What is it that clicks for you that makes it so exciting for you? I love being able to see you can compare. You have that timeline, you have that timeline, and then you have today. And that having two of them instead of one kind of forces you to think of our own time as a third. And then I also just love seeing what Emmeline's choices were, what Nellie's choices were, which is a friend of Emmeline's overseas, how they affect Kathleen decades later, things she doesn't even know happen to people she doesn't necessarily know. I think it it adds an element of when you have that second timeline, there are always questions. And so as the character wants to answer them and the reader wants to answer them too. So it provides this impetus to move forward it moves the plot along because the reader wants to turn the page and find out hey what happened 60 years ago i don't know i might know more than the second timeline character does but i don't know the whole story yet and so i think that is a driving force it gives me the momentum and i hope it gives the reader the momentum to read the book as well 
So both of your books also feature strong women in times when women were struggling to be seen as equals. And again, third timeline, modern day <laughs> struggling in some ways. Well, it's very marketable. It's not why I write it, but it is very marketable. It's interesting because at the end of the War Library and the interview with the publishers, they asked me something about women's stories finally being told. And that was interesting to me because I'm only 24 years old. So all of the fiction I've ever read has been women's stories. Eventually, I understand that that wasn't always the case, but for me, it always has been. And so I answered that by saying instead, like, I don't think someone reading my book probably isn't struggling to find stories about white women in history in America. So I go through and list a whole bunch of books by authors of color, historical fiction, books that I've loved by LGBTQ authors, because I think those stories are so much more underrepresented. Publishing is grappling with that, obviously. But I think while I will continue writing about women, because that's a story that I live, I don't want to appropriate, you know, a a world that isn't mine. But I do want to also bring attention to those other stories. So to wrap up, as we're recording this, it is close to the start of school and I'm buying school supplies for my kids. And it reminded me that when I was reading your bio on your website, you mentioned a story that you wrote about talking school supplies. Um, Can you talk about not necessarily that story, if you don't want to tell that story, but of just early writing experiences that you had? I was not good at finishing my stories, but I was very good at starting them. That one was actually a series. Bob was the eraser. He got married. He went on a honeymoon on the rainbow. It was very exciting. No dual timelines, though. No dual timelines there. No dual timelines. And I don't think I'd have the stamina for a series these days. So kudos to little me. I think my favorite one that I wrote when I was little was about an ant who was getting revenge on an exterminator for killing his whole family. Every time the exterminators came to our house, you know, we lived in Florida. They had to go out to the patio and whatever. I would cry and cry and cry. I'd be so mad at my parents. I'm like, you're killing them. How could you do this? They're not hurting us. They're just ants. You know, if it had been up to me, the whole house would have been overrun with ants. So I was seven years old. I couldn't do anything about it. So I took a piece of paper and I took a pencil and I wrote this story. And the ant poisoned the, there was a pie, a poisonous pie. And there was a lot going on. So I think, I guess, in a weird way, that doesn't seem at all realistic, but in a weird way, I was always pulling things from what matters, what do I see wrong here now, and how can writing help us understand that, you know, even if it's something as simple. Pulling for the underdog. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty dark story, too. That's like rolling all level dark there. (laughs) You know, it it surprised me, honestly. Did I really write that? I cried (laughs) when Ants died. (laughs) So I can't let you go without asking if you have another book in the pipeline and if you're allowed to say anything about it? Yeah, nothing official yet. I am working on two manuscripts. One, another dual timeline, historical fiction, 1939 on and 1991 and 92. We'll see if it turns into anything. And then I'm also working on a middle grade. Seemed natural as a teacher. I spend all day with children. It seems like I should write something for them. What grade do you like to teach? I love third, but elementary is just anywhere in there. I'd be happy. (laughs) Great. So again, the book is The War Librarian and it is available now. So either run out and buy it or check it out a bunch of times at your local public library and then they'll buy more copies. And so everybody can get more copies. Thank you, Addison, so much for coming on and telling my listeners about the book. This has been so great. Thank you. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. 
For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. To learn more about this episode's guest, sign up for the Circulating Ideas newsletter. You can find the link in the show notes or on the site. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thank you for listening and keep circulating your ideas. <laughs>